Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. First, let me start by thanking the uh, freak that showed up at our live show in New York and brought you a jackknife. I love it. And that was, who was that? Jen. 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 Okay, Jen. Jen gave you a jackknife, uh, knowing that you're getting on an airplane the next day. <laughs> it made it through. It was fine. And then you get a package uh, from another freak that included... Well, a plethora of weaponry. Yes. Okay. So uh, apparently there's this company called Damsel in Defense. And so I got this package shipped from Maine. Oh, so it was a whole thing because we're still getting mail in Maine, right? Right. And they have to send it to us. But when they got this package, they were like, so it says that there are certain materials in here that can't be shipped. And I was like, what? And so they had to open it and it was a whole thing. And it took forever for me to get it anyway. So um, there were tasers and <laughs> there were <laughs> um, jabby things for your keychain. There was Mace. And so my friend Amber had to go and pick up the mace and then bring it down in her carry-on. It was a whole thing. Anyway, I'm so jazzed. Great. Now there's many, many more opportunities for you to get pulled aside by TSA or Disney security. So. Either way, thank you so much. <laughs> it is a delight. And every time I get ready to leave the house, I'm like, which taser should I bring? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a question I bet you never thought you'd ask yourself. Um, Speaking of weapons, it's well known that Nazi World War II technology was extremely advanced in uh, the development of weaponry. Right, yeah. Nazi tanks were technically superior to the tanks that were produced by the Allies. Now, fortunately, the war ended before they were able to employ many of these advanced weaponry devices that were in development. Mm-hmm. We, we won just in the nick of time, it turned out. But, uh, you know, at the time, they were, they were already starting to fly jets in combat. 
before the Allies did. They had a series of terror weapons that they called the V-series, V standing for vengeance. Okay. Uh, That included the V-1 cruise missile and the V-2 ballistic missile. And again, this is the 1940s. They were also developing a flying wing that had not quite reached the stage of being a working model that could be employed, but was quite advanced. And if you look at old pictures of the prototypes, they look very much like the stealth bomber that was developed here in the U.S. decades later. Amazing. In fact, the U.S., as well as the Russian army, captured as many of the scientists and as much of the military technology as they could toward the end of the war. They knew that the Nazis were very advanced in many different areas of science and weapon development. In the U.S., this project was called Project Paperclip, where they would go in and and capture the technology as well as the scientists involved in uh, in developing it. Project Paperclip was able to secure V-2 missiles and also bring figures like the famous aerospace engineer Werner von Braun to the U.S. He was responsible for inventing the V-2 rocket and later designed the Saturn V rocket for NASA's Apollo program. Huh. Did not know that. Now, these are commonly some of the more well-known Nazi weapon projects, but there are others that are lesser known and don't have the evidence or the paper trails that the uh, aforementioned weapons did or do. Okay. So they're weapons that people think that they had? Yeah. What, for example, there was a device called the Glocke or the Bell. Rumors of this device can be traced back to the early 1960s. Now, the Nazi Bell was supposed to be some sort of a anti-gravitational device. It was bell-shaped. It looked like a, almost like a, a lunar module capsule landing type of thing. Got it. Uh, but it disappeared before the victorious allies could locate it and capture the technology. Or it never existed in the first place. Or it never existed in the first place. We don't know for sure, but there is some evidence, albeit not a lot of really good evidence, but there is some evidence that it uh, was in development. The story is that uh, the notorious SS Colonel Hans Kammler who was responsible for overseeing many of the high-tech weapons projects for the Nazis, like the V-2 missiles, Mm -hmm. was also in charge of the development of the Nazi Bell project. The story goes that uh, during testing phases of the Bell, it was an anti-gravitational device. Uh, The contraption actually caused a warp in the time-space fabric. Accidentally, the legend says, they had inadvertently invented a time machine. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Now, this is similar to the story of the Philadelphia experiment, which was allegedly... (laughs) I'm sorry. It's just so funny how our conversations in bed directly lend to (laughs) the next episode that you do. (laughs) We were just discussing this in bed like two nights ago. (laughs) Yes, we were. The Philadelphia Project allegedly was a program that the United States Navy was employing, or actually the military in general from the U.S., uh, to develop a device that would uh, render battleships invisible or essentially warp the uh, space around it to to make it appear invisible. Or not appear invisible. Right. (laughs) Please don't leave me. So they were both kind of anti-gravitational warping devices, and they both supposedly also caused 
time travel in the Philadelphia Project, it was said that it appeared at first just a few miles away and then reappeared. But in a second testing, it appeared right off of Long Island in um, New York, but it wasn't 1945. It was like in the 1980s. Now, to clarify, when you say it appeared... The, the battleship. It, okay. When the battleship reappeared, the story goes that many of the sailors were trapped inside the metal of the hull and the in the in the deck. Right. They were they had become part of. I mean, the material they were made out of had become part of the material that the ship was made out of. Like the Hoover Dam. Well, yeah, a different a different process, but yeah. According to some sources, and when I say some sources, I mean the internet, mm -hmm. uh, the SS designed and built a strange anti-gravitational device, which gave it the name the Bell. It was powered by a fuel called Zerum 525, otherwise known as Red Mercury. Um, it was dangerous and, and unstable. It was between 12 and 14 feet tall and 9 feet wide and made of 3-inch ceramic, some ceramic material. And is there any proof that this fuel exists? Mm, no. Um, it's also true that there's very little hard documentation that this weapon existed. Uh, there were rumors, though, of it uh, as early as the 1960s. It showed up in Igor Witowski's 2000 book called The Truth About the Wonder Weapon. And shortly after, in the book The Hunt for the Zero Point by Nick Cook, it was described as a glowing, rotating contraption that had, quote, some kind of anti-gravitational effect, or even a time machine that happened to be an offshoot of the SS anti-gravitational program for the Repulsing Flying Saucer Project. They were also trying to develop a flying saucer. The okay. Nazis were. Well, who doesn't want to develop a flying saucer? That's my question. So the story goes that the Nazi bell was close to being functional, but then the Allies were about to end the war, and the Nazi bell disappeared in about May of 1945, shortly before the end of the war, which is why the Allies couldn't get their hands on it. So the story goes. Interestingly, the notorious SS Colonel Hans Kemmler also disappeared in May of 1945 during the final days of the war, and he was never heard from again. There are many theories as to what happened to him. One is that U.S. forces, when they captured Nazi scientists, they captured Kemmler himself, and they put him to work developing anti-gravitational technology for the United States. Another is that he was actually killed in the Austrian Alps trying to escape Allied forces. And some say that perhaps he used the Nazi bell to escape. Not to where, but to when. Meaning that he then ended up as part of a ship? <laughs> uh, note that he, uh, he time-traveled to a safer time. Nah. On December 9th, 1965, in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, which is here in the U.S., for those of you listening overseas, a fireball was reported by citizens of six states in Canada over Detroit, Michigan, and Windsor, Ontario. Astronomers at the time thought it was likely to be a meteor burning up in the atmosphere and descending at a very steep angle. The event is often referred to as Pennsylvania's Roswell. Eyewitnesses say the object was bell-shaped, Several locals who saw it crash were initially the first to catch a close vision of it. Um, they were there before the police and the military arrived. They described a bronze-colored object, 9 to 12 feet in length, 9 feet wide, with a gold band surrounding the bottom of it, and it appeared to be bell or acorn-shaped. This was almost exactly 20 years 
after it allegedly disappeared, as well as uh, Kemmler disappeared. Okay. According to an interview in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette by one of the eyewitnesses, things got pretty strange pretty quickly. Quote, the U.S. government claimed that they were never tracking it, which makes no sense. They had been tracking it. The Canadian radar was tracking it, so they must have been. They saw military men up close because they set up their command center in uh, one witness's family's two-story house overlooking the woods. The site offered them a view of the area as well as, uh, as, well as a working telephone. Again, this was 1965. Mm-hmm. Quote, the first thing they did was tell my parents to send the kids to bed. Well, naturally, I was excited by all the goings-on, and our bedroom was downstairs. I made quite a few trips to the bathroom that night. I'm sorry. I'm having a hard time kind of immersing myself in what's going on here. Is there any way that you could do a 1965 child's voice? I have to get into character for that, and I need a backstory. I don't have time to develop that right now. Okay. There were a lot of men in uniforms, and there were some men in suits, and it was clear that the men in suits were in charge of everything. They were over the top of the military, and they had quite a lot of clout. From an upstairs bedroom... He got a better view of the authorities coming and going, quote, I couldn't see down into the hollow where they were at, but I did see six guys in radiation suits take a box down there. I didn't see them bring it back out, though. After the crash, a local person called a radio station, WHJB, to report what they had seen. They claimed to have seen the object. A guy named John Murphy, who worked there, immediately called the report into the Pennsylvania State Police. Murphy then, of course, you know, being a radio station guy, uh, he went to the site and interviewed a woman and her children who had seen the object. State police, in the meantime, were searching the woods. Soon, the military showed up. Murphy was eagerly waiting to hear what the uh, authorities had to say, whether it was a plane or, or, or a piece of a plane or a meteorite or whatever it was. But the police came from the woods and they refused to even give him a comment. So looking for more evidence, and he wasn't very happy with uh, their response, he called the state police and they said, no, you need to come down to the state police headquarters. We'll issue a statement uh, in person. So he gets down there and the place is completely taken over by the military. And then the police made a statement and it was very unbelievable, he said. The official report said, quote, The Pennsylvania State Police have made a thorough search of the woods. We are convinced that there is nothing whatsoever in the woods. That was it. (laughs) That was the whole, that was it. Wow. But then he overheard one of the police officers saying that he... Do you think they bought it? (laughs) (laughs) No, he said that uh, he overheard somebody, a guy that had been down there saying he saw a flashing blue light. And so, obviously, if he had seen a flashing blue light, then something was down there, even though they claimed that there was nothing down there. The military then took a second trip down into the woods, even though they said they found nothing. And Murphy tried to tag along, and he got as far as the edge of the woods, and then they wouldn't let him go any any further. Uh, The area had been completely sealed off. After their second venture into the woods, the military made their official version of what happened available. They said a meteorite had been responsible for the disturbance in the woods at Kecksburg and that it had burned up just before it hit the ground. Uh, Locals said, however, that in the middle of the night, they spotted military vehicles bringing a large object out of the woods on the back of a truck, and it had been covered with a tarp so they couldn't see what it was. So what happened to John Murphy, the reporter from the radio station? 
He was pretty hot on the story there for a bit, and then it just seemed like he totally gave up. He just stopped following it. Hmm. After he died, his widow made a shocking disclosure. She said her husband happened to be one of the very first people there at the site of the crash, and he had photographed the object. The photo was immediately confiscated by the military, and he was instructed to not reveal any details of what he had seen that day. He was told if he went against their warning, there would be severe consequences. Now, in Project Blue Book, they did report on the Kecksburg case, and it does confirm that there was a photo of the object taken. But interestingly, they didn't include the photo in the in the Project Blue Book report. Plus, there was no object. Right. There was no object, even though they said... There was a photo of the object. Right. Huh. So I'm thinking, geez, this would be really cool if that Nazi colonel guy got in the time machine and teleported exactly 20 years into the future. Not that I want that guy to survive just because, well, time travel. But if he was connected somehow to both of these incidents, the Nazi bell, the development of that, and then the crash in Pennsylvania, as much as I'd love to believe it was a time machine, if he was connected to both of those things, then probably it was more likely that he was captured during Project Paperclip and helped develop some sort of a device technologically here in the U.S. And that version is what was seen. Or maybe he's not connected at all. Mm. Quite recently, a discovery was made that might answer what this was all about. According to a Pittsburgh Post-Gazette article in 2015, more than five decades after this event, Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania researchers have put a theory forward. They claimed that the object that came down in 1965 was, in fact, a General Electric Mark II reentry vehicle that had been launched by the Air Force from Johnston Island in the Pacific two days earlier as part of America's top-secret program for spying on the Soviet Union from outer space. They say it may have been a spy satellite, but then it fell out of orbit and crashed. That would explain why the military didn't want anybody to see it and they didn't want to talk about it and why there was a a cover up. And why it looked like a satellite. And why it looked like an object or a satellite from outer space. So as much as I really wanted that Nazi guy to have a time machine, you know, and then we kick his ass when he shows up. Right. You know, 20 years later. Of course. But it's probably... Probably more likely that the latter was the reason for that. Or it could be aliens. My sources include cool, interesting (laughs) stuff, Wikipedia, Popular Mechanics, and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, The Legend of the Nazi Bell, and the Kecksburg, Pennsylvania UFO incident. Connected? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now, that thing in the middle. The Trail of Tears was part of a series of forced displacements by the U.S. government of approximately 60,000 Native Americans from five different tribes between 1830 and 1850. Just 14 years after the Trail of Tears, the Choctaw people donated $170 to victims of the Great Potato Famine in Ireland, though they had little to give. This generosity created a bond between the two peoples that lasts to this day. In 2018, Ireland created a scholarship for Choctaw youth, saying to them, your act of kindness has never been and never will be forgotten in Ireland. 
the only podcast that has a mad crush on both Rob Lowe and Taylor Swift. I mean, they are both so cute. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings, while kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances i sit down with nerd wallets team of nerds personal finance experts in credit cards banking investing and more We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Box of Oddities. Support for The Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us too. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Stephanie sent us a Facebook message. I was listening to y'all's Halloween episode, and I was so thrilled when you played the one about the woman who moved to Black Star Canyon. I moved into Silverado Canyon when my oldest son was only one. It's a tiny little community right outside of Black Star Canyon. That story was about the, uh, she called the creatures the backward. Right. Yeah, some kind of weird dog-like creatures that would assume the identities of people that she loved and enter her house. Very upsetting. And very close to the location of the Black Star Canyon Massacre, uh, which might make a great future boo topic. There are so many paranormal stories about how the trails around my home were haunted. Anyway, I've heard stories of all of these, what I like to call skinwalkers. Our home was definitely haunted. If we were sitting on the patio smoking and reached for a lighter, it would move across the table. Once? (laughs) Once my smoke detector was somehow removed from the wall from above the door and floated to the other side of the room. Um, no thank you. Before dropping on the floor. My roommate was watching my son one time and thought that he was hiding in a laundry basket because it was moving. And then my son walked out of the closet behind her. Mm Mm-mm. There was just always a rule that we didn't walk around at night alone because there were these, quote, weird animals in the hills. It was somehow so amazing to hear this story on Boo. Thank you for making my entire week with one story. Y'all are the best, Stephanie. We didn't even do that story. No, we didn't do it. We just included it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty scary stuff. That's why we appreciate so much uh, you guys partaking in our annual Halloween episode, uh, sometimes episodes, and uh, sharing your stories with us. And now it's your turn to share a story with me. All right. I have a lot of problems with Andy Warhol. Uh, but I don't, I don't, personally, I don't really want to get into that. I just I feel like uh, I I don't always dig on his art. Mm. And I feel like a lot of times he utilized uh, black and trans people in his art, but without proper representation. It doesn't matter. What I'm saying is Andy Warhol was weird. And we're not going to talk about whether or not I think he was a cool guy. We're going to talk about some of his weirder eccentricities that uh made him interesting regardless of whether or not he was a D-bag. So we know that Andy Warhol collected things. Um, Airplane menus was one of the things that he really liked (laughs) to collect. I I had heard that he collected cookie jars, but not airplane menus. Cookie jars was another thing. Also, unpaid invoices he liked to collect. Uh, Pizza dough, pulp novels, Pizza dough like, like leftover crusts? No. No, dough would imply not cooked. Okay. Right? Okay. So he would collect raw pizza dough. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Uh, okay. Did Pornogra- he keep it refrigerated? Uh, not that I know of. Good Lord. No. Uh, pornographic pulp novels, uh, supermarket flyers. And the extent of his collecting wasn't really known until after he died. 641 boxes of, quote, Andy's stuff, a.k.a. Andy Warhol's time capsules, are on display at the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh. Uh, Time capsules for him were cardboard boxes that he kept in his office by his desk, and he would just fill it up with the daily stuff of his life. Oh, I got this pamphlet at the pizza shop. It goes in the box. Oh, well, here's some plastic that I found on the street. Box. So it was his way of turning junk mail and items and objects of no importance into some sort of art in his mind. Yeah, I think it was just about uh, preserving the day in some way. Uh, He actually had so many possessions that it took Sotheby's a total of nine days to auction off all of his stuff. (laughs) Did they auction off all those boxes? Well, some went to museums. There is a museum called the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, sure, and sure. that's where uh, 641 boxes of this stuff are. But they did auction off a lot of his stuff and brought in uh, for the estate about $20 million. So it's kind of like a mystery box thing. You yeah. go to the auction and you bid on it. You don't know what you're going to get. That's right. It could be some kind of prized piece of art that mm-hmm. he's dashed off on a on a placemat. Could be pizza crust. You don't know. You just don't know. Now, Warhol's look was pretty well understood. You see even just his silhouette, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's Andy Warhol, right? He had this short, choppy silver hair and those trademark horn-rimmed glasses. And the hair was part of his signature style that he had that barely changed throughout his entire life. Well, it was in his 20s that Andy Warhol started going bald, and it didn't vibe with the look that he wanted. So he started wearing wigs in his 20s. And that's how he maintained that exact same look for his entire life. That's interesting. But again, he was a collector. So he didn't have just one or two wigs. He had a bunch. And it was a New York wig maker that he got them from who would sew them from hair imported from Italy. And they all looked exactly the same? No, He would have hairdressers trim the wigs so he can alternate short and long wigs, creating the illusion that his hair was growing and then getting cut again. (laughs) That's pretty brilliant. Yeah. And he was pretty dedicated to his look. In 1985, a girl snatched off his wig at a book signing and he noted in his diary, I don't know what held me back from pushing her over the balcony. So he was serious about that look. He was a serious wig enthusiast. Andy Warhol was bedridden for a chunk of his childhood. He was not well. And that's when he developed his love for art because he could still draw and such in bed. And it was in the 1950s when he was coming up in the circles of New York artists. He didn't have a lot of luck. And more often than not, he was rejected. But eventually... As we know, he became one of the most successful and influential painters ever. But he wasn't just a painter. He had his little fingers in all kinds of stuff. I mean, quite literally sometimes. But um, (laughs) he co-authored a cookbook called Wild Raspberries. Um, He managed and produced The Velvet Underground, though the extent of that production is 
debated. Some people say he just paid for the studio time, mm-hmm. and that essentially met, let him say that he helped produce it. Yeah, anyway. I, I remember reading something about that just recently. Uh, interestingly enough, that uh, yeah, he u- let them use part of his uh, warehouse that was his called factory? the factory for rehearsals. Yeah, he produced three television shows. He shot both short and feature-length films. He sculpted, he photographed, he did stage performances, he built stage art pieces. He even wrote a play titled Pork, based on some of his audio recordings. (laughs) One of the uh, most interesting projects that he wanted to take on, though he never actually got a chance to finish it, that I think was interesting, uh, he wanted to open a series of vending machine restaurants called Andy Matt's. Okay, that's interesting. I think we should bring back the vending machine restaurant, I'm just saying. The old automats yes, from the 30s. Yeah. exactly. Of course, Andy Warhol had a lot of what you might call shocking art. He was, he was described as a shock artist, and he was openly gay, and he housed drag queens, and he painted with pee. And so there were a lot of things that don't exactly coincide with our idea of a devout Catholic, but he was. Okay. All right. Biographer John Richardson said that the artist could on occasion actually be an effective proselytizer. Let me tell you about my my beautiful Catholic faith, uh, but first I need to I need to finish up this painting I'm doing with urine. He also took considerable pride in financing his nephew's studies for the priesthood. In 1980, he had an audience with the Pope. And every day he would attend Mass. Every day. I had no idea. He took his spiritual life very seriously, um, volunteering throughout his life, including working at homeless shelters in New York. And when he became interested in uh, crystal work, really struggled with whether or not that clashed with his faith. Interesting. I mean, he took it serious. Hmm. This is a side of Andy I had no idea. I didn't either. Existed. Now, we talked about the factory a little bit. There were actually three factory locations between 62 and 84. Uh, the first was in Midtown Manhattan. Now, Warhol at this time was selling silk screens, and he was mass-producing images the way that corporations mass-produce their, their consumer goods. And in order to increase production, he attracted people who would come and help him produce these works. He called them Warhol superstars. And usually they were uh, adult film actors, drag queens, socialites, drug addicts, musicians, or whoever who wanted to be art workers. It was also a really hip hangout for artistic types and people who were hooked on speed. Yeah, that was a big thing, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a big thing. Yeah, and and he did. He hung out with a a lot of the um, rock star royalty of the day. Like you see pictures of him back in the day with Mick Jagger Mm. and uh, lots of uh, well-known drug users of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, I mean, in addition to this kind of environment that he created, he was also known for kind of snagging from other people's art and other people's ideas. Hmm. And for example, he went to a haircutting party at Billy Name's apartment, which was decorated with tinfoil and silver paint. And I just want to say that I want to go to a haircutting party. That sounds like a blast. We should have one. So he said, yeah, this is how I want the 
factory to look. So silver, fractured mirrors, and tinfoil were the basic decorating materials for his loft. And uh, it was kind of the theme for amphetamine users at the time was this silvery, reflecty, you know, disco Hmm. ball kind of look. And Warhol's years at the factory were known as the silver era because of this. Wow. Yeah. Now, we we touched briefly on the P art. And this is something I didn't know anything about until I was doing the research for this. And I think it's really interesting and not something that I would want in my home. <laughs> but um, it's really it's a very interesting concept. So it's called his oxidation series. And he would basically... Um, cover canvases in iridescent copper paint. And then he would bring people into his studio to pee on the canvas. Now, the chemical reaction between the uric acid in, in the urine and the copper created a variety of colors without the need to color them like, or paint them. It's incredible. And probably they were the first pieces of art that tested positive for amphetamines. <laughs> yep. So these, these pieces, you'll often see colors like reds, browns, blacks, blues, and greens. Um, the oxidation process also caused bubbling and uh, clumping. And that would vary depending on uh, the diets and the health of the people <laughs> who are peeing on these canvases, which wow. is really kind of wow kind of me it's like one of those little ph strips um <laughs> that i was obsessed with when i was a kid you were I, obsessed with ph strips oh my gosh yes really yeah i know so, what i'm getting you for your birthday I, well week. one christmas my ex-boyfriend's mom got me a huge pack of ph cri- strips and i just went around testing the ph of everything i could get my hands on <laughs> it was the most fun it was one of my favorite Christmas gifts ever. You're an oddball. <laughs> I, I love you so much. <laughs> so <laughs> You're so easy to buy for. <laughs> I know. Some people think that I'm hard to buy, shop for, but I think I'm the easiest person to shop I for. I would agree. Thank you. Do you remember that time you brought me a box of Lucky Charms and I cried? I do remember yeah. that, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, so Andy Warhol, there's more maybe to him than than what you knew. There's definitely more than what I knew. Um and if you knew all this stuff, sorry about that. That no. was that was a real bummer. I bet. I thought <laughs> I thought I knew quite a bit about Andy Warhol, mm. and uh, I would say seventy five percent of what you said I had no idea. Oh, good. Was a fact. Yay! They are facts, right? You're not just making this up. Oh no, most of what I say on the show is is real. Most of it. Yeah. What I about- mean, as opposed to you know what I'm getting at, right? Aliens. You know. There was a time where I thought you had an open mind. Ghosties. It seems like your mind is becoming more Werewolves and more and yetis. closed as, as time goes on. <sighs> I'm just I'm just giving you the funsy slaps. The ha ha hoo hoos. I'm sorry, I'm not paying attention because uh Haggis and Howard are just really friggin' cute right now. They're snuggling and it's blowing my mind. It's so cute. He's only been here for well less than Two days? About two days. About two days, and they're like best friends. It's so great to see. Now he's looking his balls. Okay, it's a good time to wrap things up. All right, that's enough. Okay. I mean, I don't I don't blame him, because if I could do that... Hey, come on. I'd probably stay home all the time. No. Anyway, we look forward to seeing you guys next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. 
The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2021 All rights reserved history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts if you like this podcast can we recommend another one It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.